Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge, where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. All the money in my household had gone and we were effectively bankrupt. I remember the bank taking away all my mother's stuff. Me being the blackest, poorest kid in a nice area creates a certain contrast, which made me feel like I wasn't enough. And I think I contended with that my whole childhood. Stephen Bartlett. Stephen Bartlett is an entrepreneur, author. University dropout, shoplifting food from corner shops to keep his hunger at bay. He then co-founded the innovative social media marketing agency, Social Chain. A company worth 300 million pounds. You became a millionaire at a very young age. What do you think is the fastest path today to become a millionaire? If you're the type of person that's trying to take the fast path, you've already lost. I knew you were going to say something like that. Because like, <laughs> it turns out that the slow way is the only way. So the slow way is the fast way. The fast way takes you nowhere. And even if you get there, it's probably unsustainable. Buying NFTs, crypto, like it's not enduring long-term path. The fast way is the slow way because the slow way is the only way. I'm Erica Kohlberg and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between six to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. I've always wanted to ask this. So you ask a lot of your guests this question, but what is it that I need to know about your background, where you came from to understand the person who is sitting in front of me today? First of all, thank you for having me on. 
Um, it's wonderful to see you again. Um, so there's a few things that I think are really important context. The first is I was born in Botswana in Africa. The second is I moved to the UK in 1990, I think four, don't know the dates exactly, to an all-white, pretty much all-white area. Our family, when we moved there, we were middle class. But that by the age of 10, all the money in my household had gone and we were effectively bankrupt. I remember the bank taking away all my mother's stuff. We understand the value of everything we see by the context in which we see it. So me being the blackest, poorest kid in a nice area creates a certain contrast, which made me feel like I wasn't enough. And I think I contended with that my whole childhood. No friend ever came to my house because the grass at the back of the house was six foot high, the windows were smashed, the doors inside my house. It was like living inside the house of a hoarder. But outside my house, if you looked at our neighbors, perfection. And there was this sort of dilapidated house with this weird family, this Nigerian, half Nigerian family with a Nigerian mother in this all white area. So none of my friends ever knew where I lived. I would get them, I'd get people to drop me off couple of streets down and then I'd walk. I lived with this kind of subtle angst and shame. And then by 10 years old, my mother gets so preoccupied with her businesses, like corner shops and stuff she's starting, and that she stops coming home because those shops are being broken into because she's black. People are smashing the windows, burning the car. So she starts sleeping in the back room on this bag of rice. And I'm the youngest of four. So I think my parents, and this is often the case with parents, they kind of assume that they've raised the youngest. And you get treated the same way that the, the oldest do. So, you know, you've got a sister that's maybe 25, another brother that's 24, another brother that's, you know, you know, whatever. And then there's me that's like 10. So I get treated like I'm that age. So there's this huge void of independence in my life where I could leave the house for two or three days. And my parents genuinely, they couldn't ground me because they couldn't enforce the grounding. So huge void of independence, a kid that really wants stuff because of this subtle shame. And from that, I believe you have an entrepreneur because... You have a big space to run experiments and to figure stuff out. And you have this huge macro motivational tailwind, which is I want stuff. I want to fit in. If I can get those shoes, that bag, that thing, if I can go on that school ski trip, then I will be like my rich white friends. And those are the two factors in my life that I point at. Um, 12, I start businesses. 14 years old, I start businesses. By 16 years old, I'm still in the same school. We have six form in that school. I'm, I'm doing all the school trips. I'm doing every you know, opportunity or excuse I can to throw a party, I'm throwing it and the whole school is coming and then local schools start coming. By 16, 17, I'm doing the vending machine deals in the school because the school were going to buy them. And I saw Carly Stokes sat there looking through a catalog. I was like, we don't need to pay. I can get a vending machine company to give us the machines for free and we'll make profit from them. So I did that deal for our school. I get expelled. I then get unexpelled. My, my head teacher came on national TV and the show called What I Lied to You and said, we kicked him out of school and then unexpelled him because he made the school so much money. <laughs> the last week of school, they, they expelled me again, told me to go home and not come back. Go off to university, one lecture, drop out. And then business begins. And then uh, I called my mum, said, mum, I'm dropping out of university. She said, I'll never speak to you again if you do. And so for the next two years or so, we didn't chat. But um, I figured my way through that situation. Lots of bailiff letters, lots of CCJs, which is a county court judgment where they're going to take your stuff. Lots of like shoplifting pizzas to feed myself and trying to survive in Manchester and Mossside. And built businesses, kind of made my way out of that situation. Um, and I'm here now. Wow, that's a whirlwind of a story. When you were 10 years old, what was your understanding of money? And did your parents sit you down and say, hey, Stephen, we're going through financial hardship right now. Your life is now going to look different. What was that conversation like? There was definitely no conversation. And you learn the laws of money and also the laws of love and most things in life by vicariously observing the role that it's playing in your life. 
And that starts at a very young age. And so you develop this kind of model and relationship with all of these things in your life based on how it's impacting your parents and you. And for me, money was the cause of all arguments, but it was also the cause of my shame. It was the reason why, you know, the day before Christmas, me and my brothers would sit up and um, make up the stuff that we were... So we'd say, well, what are you going to say you got for Christmas? And my brother would be like, I'm going to say I got PlayStation. And then I'd say, well, I'm going to say that I got this. And then we'd go to school the next day and pretend we got it. We got nothing. We didn't get anything for birthdays either at that point. When Once money had really dried out, we had love in our home. I think this is important to say. Like my parents really loved us, but unfortunately because of financial decisions that were made to start businesses, that were never going to work. We didn't have stuff. And so it was a huge source of shame. And I'm actually quite embarrassed by it because I really wish I was a young person that could realize that I had so much. But I didn't know that. I didn't know that the, I had the most important stuff. I had like two parents that loved me. I had siblings, I had a roof over our head. But when you're that age, you just focus on the things that are invalidating you. And then when you become an adult, you seek validation from the things that invalidated you when you were younger. And you need to, at some point, realize that there is a puppet master above you that is pulling the strings of your behavior. And that's very much what I realized by about 25 years old. But if you look at my diary at 18 years old, when I dropped out of university, in the first page of it, which I've uploaded to the internet multiple times, it says, the goals before I'm 25. And at this time, I was shoplifting. It says, make a million pounds before I'm 25. A Range Rover Sport will be my first car. Get a, get a girlfriend and get a six-pack. Something like that. Work on my body image, I think the words were, but I wanted a six-pack. I did all of those things before 25 years old. A Range Rover Sport was my first car. I made millions. I did all of those things. But um, yeah, I was aiming at the wrong thing. It was like a mirage. It was like grabbing at a rainbow or something. It just didn't, it was the wrong things to be aiming at because it was driven by insecurity and shame and external extrinsic goals. And I came to learn that real ambition is something very different. When did you realize that money wasn't going to solve the problems that you were hoping it would solve? I think in most walks of life, you have to, especially when it's a very strong psychological force, you have to have it fail you often, unfortunately, to realize that it was a lie and that either yourself or society or something lied to you. So your mother's advice for you to go and become a dentist in the city was actually bad advice. You have to go and become the dentist and then feel that feeling inside you of emptiness and lostness to know that your mother's um, advice failed you. And it was the same for me. When I realized I had a net worth in the tens of millions because of the success of my company and I was doing running the numbers of, like, okay, I have this many shares and if I sell them, then I'll da-da-da-da. And also when a big company in the UK came and started conversations about acquiring my business. And I went home that day and went on Rightmove where you look at houses and I went on Autotrader where you look at cars. And as I stared into that screen and I was think, weighing up, the, the, looking at what I could get with this hard work, with this thing called money, by that point, I realized that I would be somewhat psychologically poorer and I'd be joining a treadmill that would lead me nowhere if I bought this stuff. But 18-year-old Steve... 16-year-old Steve, 10-year-old Steve showed up that day as well when I was 25. And we were looking into that screen at the houses and cars. And he was like, let's do it. Let's get it. This was, this was what it was all for. <laughs> but 25-year-old Steve didn't want to trade his purpose, which was building my business and the colleagues that I had, for that shiny car. So there was this real internal conflict. And it left me with this question, which is, what am I doing this for? If it wasn't for the Lamborghini and this mansion outside of Manchester, then what am I doing this for? But... I took the mansion and I moved 45 minutes outside of Manchester. We had a tennis court at the bottom of the drive and I lasted there for about 12 months or 18 months before I begged to leave because I'd, I'd moved myself an hour outside of Manchester to a place called um, Rortonstall, 
And I was just an hour away from my friends. My friends couldn't come there. What's the point having a seven-bedroom house with a tennis court and a games room and a cinema when you've A, got no friends and you're arriving home at 1 a.m. from work every day anyway? So just a bunch of like confusion through that period of my life. And I came out the other side of it, a very different person who doesn't have material possessions other than that, that bag there that won't break, which I've had for four years. That is the most expensive material possession I own. Um, I've got a car as well. My driver drives me in. We call it the diary of a CEO car because it picks up our guests and stuff. But other than the diary of a CEO car and that bag, there's nothing else in my life um, that is of any value materially. So come out the other end more sort of focused on the right things. That question of what am I doing this for? What would your answer have been a few years ago? And then what is your answer today? Um, Well, I definitely thought I was doing it for money. And I think to some degree, like validation from something. Like I think going back to that quote about the things that invalidate you are the things you seek validation from when you're older. I was probably at like a deeper level still trying to fit in amongst my rich white friends in an area where I grew up with a subtle angst because I was different. You know, chemically relaxing my hair so it was straight, wearing the skinniest jeans because everybody started listening to the kooks and arctic monkeys, doing whatever I could to fit in. So it was definitely that. And now, what am I doing this for? I've come to learn that it is the forward motion towards a worthwhile, challenging goal with a high degree of autonomy in your life, surrounded and working with people you love that make life worth living. So those five key components of having a sense of forward motion, which is integral to everybody to be satisfied in your work. I I look at the studies in my book around the feeling of progress. I sat with Sir David Brailsford, who's known for taking the English cycling team from obscurity and like depression and being down and out, like morally down and out. They'd win, they were winning nothing. They were slow as hell to making them the, the greatest cycling team that have like ever walked the earth and winning all the gold medals at the Olympics. How did he take that group of people from there to here? And when speaking to him, he was like, of course, it's the marginal gain stuff that you read about in Atomic Habits, you know, the making the pillows a little bit softer, the making the water bottles a bit bigger and all that. But at the one line that he said to me really stuck out to me. He said, you know, the key thing was we felt like we were moving. And then that sounds like a very simple sentence. But when I dug into that, it's such an important sentence because Harvard Business Review asked thousands of people in work, what was your most enjoyable day? And they responded, when they looked at their diaries, they told them to keep these diaries, it was days where they had a feeling of progress. And if you can create a feeling of forward motion in people, then morale increases, they're more likely to find those marginal gains that Sir David Brailsford was speaking about. But that's the key thing, it's to create the sense amongst a group of people that we're moving. And most importantly, because forward motion is not progress. Forward motion towards the goal, a goal that matters to you, is progress. And that's what Sir David Brailsford did. And I call it the progress principle, which is if you can get your team, even this team that you're doing the podcast with, keep reminding them every single day of the progress we're making. Share that progress as small as it possibly is. You create this this thing in the air where you feel like you're taking on the world. And that's integral. So that's the forward motion piece. Challenge is critical to all people. So that's an important thing in my life. Um, When I sat with Daniel Pink, who's the leading motivational psychologist, to figure out why people are motivated and why they're not, it's clear that people lose motivation when something doesn't challenge them. And they also lose motivation when something is too challenging. So we all have this subjective band of challenge. You see it in game psychology. You wouldn't do a crossword on the same difficulty over and over again or play Call of Duty on the same level over and over again. We need things to get incrementally more difficult for us to stay engaged. So I need that in my life. I have to keep myself in what people call imposter syndrome. I have a voluntary you know, compulsion to stay in imposter syndrome. I can't live a life without moments of feeling a little bit out of my depth. That's critical for motivation. 
we need a goal that's subjectively meaningful. So it doesn't actually matter because the interesting thing is if you interview everybody in your team and ask them why they're doing the jobs that they do, they'll all say different reasons. It's what I noticed in my team. I said, why are you here? Oh, well, I love it because we, um, we help people with the podcast. Why are you here? Well, I just absolutely love the artistry of, of production and cameras. Okay, I don't care. But you've got to have a reason. And the reason is your own. It's not, I can't give you the reason, but I hope you find it in what we do. That's critically important. Subjective, subjective meaning in the work you're doing. A high degree of autonomy and control. People actually get sick. They get disease when they don't have control in their work. The body seems to shut down in a really, pretty remarkable way. Cardiovascular diseases, inflammation, psychological diseases, mental health predicaments, if they don't have control in their work. So that's key for me. And I always quit things very quickly when I lose that sense of control. And the last one, which is most important of all, because I think if you have all the other four and you don't have this one, you'll hate your life and your job, is working with a supportive community of people that love you, which is like having your tribe. And that's critically important. And again, it makes the stressful days less stressful. There's less cortisol released on those, those really difficult days. Disease is less likely to occur. You're less, more likely to live longer. You're more likely to do great work. The winds feel better. So those are the five pillars for me of, of why I do what I do and what I'm looking for in everything I do. And honestly, you know, kids say to me all the time, what's your passion? Like, how do I find my passion? I think the most important thing to, it's a, it's a really stupid question, I have to be honest. It's a stupid question for a number of reasons. Because it, it comes loaded. So it comes loaded with two presumptions which are unhelpful. That you have one, a singular passion, because passion is a singular word. It comes loaded with the suggestion that you have to go in search of it, like an Easter egg that is hidden somewhere. And that sends young people off on this, this site, like, I can't find my passion. You know, words sometimes let us down. Even like a question like, um, you know, you come, you meet someone and I go, do you love him? Immediately, I've presented you with a binary yes or no answer. And now I've also given you a four word letter called love that you have to fit your feelings into because you love peanut butter and your dog. And now you're, do I love him? I love peanut butter. I love it. What does love mean? Better questions are ones like, how do you feel about him? That allows for the, the total expression of one's feelings. And so going back to what I was saying about, about passions and stuff like that, I, I've come to realize that that part, the subject, the topic matters much less than those five core components because I've worked in psychedelics for years, marketing. I run a big software business in, in San Francisco. Um, I do podcast and media. I love them all. I love them all not because of the subject matter or because of the industry. I love them all because of the underlying five elements of I'm working with people I love, a high degree of control. I've got a challenge that is subjectively meaningful to me. I've got forward motion. and I've got that feeling of progress and challenge. So look for that in your work. Don't worry about the industry as much. No, I think that's right. And I feel like that question of like, how do you find your passion? It's actually, how do you find what you're not passionate about? Because I've found that everything is a process of elimination. Mm -hmm. And putting this pressure on people of, what do you want to be when you grow up? creates this expectation that there's just going to be one magical job. But really throughout my career, I've just found things that I don't like. And so then I move on to try the next thing and see if I like it. If I don't, I move on. And I feel like that's a much lower pressure way of looking at it. Amen. And we're also unbelievably multifaceted. I've got so many passions. I love writing. I love doing musical theater. I love writing musical theater shows. I love DJing. I do that all the time. I love conversations, podcasts, rockets, AI, marketing. And my, some of my favorite idols in the world are people that resisted their labels. And what I mean by a label is if you're successful in anything in life, society will say you're that thing. So social media marketing CEO. No, like, uh, social media didn't even exist when I was born. How could I be that? How could that be my passion? 
I did that. That's, that's not my identity. It's something I did. And being able to hold yourself separate from your last accomplishment is a real feat in this world because you do want to fit in and, and be understood. And the way we're understood is by our bio or the last thing we accomplished. That can be a bit of a prison sentence for people. And if you look at when people start to get burnout in their lives and big regrets or you interview people on their deathbeds like Brony Ware did, you'll find that often the source of their misery was believing the label that society gave them. It's a real risk. You should try your very best to resist your labels and say, okay, there's many, many things I love doing. Some of them I'll do professionally. Some of them I'll just do in the comfort of my home, own home when no one's looking because no one's going to pay me to do it. I'm a multifaceted person. My name is Stephen and there are so many things I love to do. And if you can stay there, I think you have a greater chance of living a more fulfilled life. And that's something that you have to fight against, especially if you do things well. Is there one label that you actually do associate the most with? Maybe creator or like, entrepreneur or creative which is an interesting thing because I didn't think of myself as creative until quite recently when I looked at the things that I do in my businesses they are the creative things how did you know that you were good at it I mean when I look at you I see a brilliant marketer you've been brilliant on social media the way you've executed with a podcast has been brilliant when did you realize this is something I could be good at you kind of learn actually from feedback right and it tends to be the things that your colleagues and your friends will pass to you to review, to look out, to fix. And over time, you, 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 honestly, for me, I established my opinion of myself by, weirdly, by because it's not always useful, but by comparison, I would observe how others did things and their perspective on work. Then I'd, I'd observe my perspective on marketing projects. And I'd think, ah, okay, there's something about my understanding of the end consumer, which means that I'm able to understand when we make a piece of marketing, the end consumer a little bit better. And then I find myself trying to explain this to people by saying, like when we're making the podcast trailers or, or a piece of great marketing for a brand, my perspective is about Jenny stood on the side of the road on the worst day of this hypothetical, everyone knows me for talking about Jenny. She's just this hypothetical person I always refer to, stood on the side of the road, it's raining. She's on the side of the road because her car just broke down. She has a flat tire. She's left home late because she was having an argument with Dave. She's on the way to a job she hates and she's late. This is not the first time she's been late. This is the third. So she's going to get disciplinary. She opens her phone to call accident and emergency, like the, the car company to help her with her tire. And she sees our stuff. What would we have to do in that moment to get Jenny just to give us a couple of seconds of her time? Because if we can capture the most extreme case, which is Jenny on the side of the road, we can capture everybody. And just that frame, like the way that I work is I think through frames like that of who the person that I'm trying to reach, it is actually my default to think like that. So it's an exercise I've created to help others understand how I think, but I try and understand Jenny's world in that moment and what I'd have to do in those first five seconds, which is a law in the book, to make sure that we understood her world and we borrowed the most precious thing in her world, which is her attention. Um, and if you think through frames like that, you can create amazing things. There's something you said earlier, which is that you always want to feel like you're in this imposter syndrome stage still. You never want to be, I guess, confident or complacent. What do you feel like you are the biggest imposter in right now? The topic of imposter syndrome is so interesting to me because it's, it's such a, from a marketing and a brand perspective, whenever you add a medical word to another word, we believe it. So if I said like entrepreneur syndrome, it suddenly gets the authority of the whole medical community behind it. So we believe it must be true. We believe it must be a thing and we accept it without questioning and interrogation. We kind of diagnose ourselves with it. And it, you can do this with words in a really wonderful way. So like, you know, entrepreneur syndrome, I could say 
the chaotic founder syndrome, the founder that's like a bull in a china shop, always has new ideas and is stressing out their team. You could just add medical words to other words and everyone will believe it. The other thing you can do it with is like math words. So if I said the imposter equation, suddenly I get the whole authority of maths behind this term I've created. And why I say this is because imposter syndrome is a bad use of words. And it's one that you should not accept as being true or valid, regardless of that medical term. Because if I said to you, do you want a life with no challenge? Do you want a life where you're always doing the same things that you already know? No. There's not a human being on earth that would, I hope there's not, that would volunteer to avoid imposter syndrome. But if I said to you, I'm going to give you a life where things increase in challenge and they increase in, you know, you're going to be challenged every day a little bit. Everyone would vouch for that. The studies show that's when people are happiest and most fulfilled and that's when their growth happens. So we could call it growth syndrome instead. We can, you know, it would, it's a nicer fra framing of the words, a growth moment. And that's how I've always seen it. Um, and I think it's a nicer frame to think through because I joined Dragon's Den. I'm sat between Deborah Meaden, who's been there for 17 years, and Peter Jones, who's been there for 21 years. These are the pioneers of the format, which then became Shark Tank. I watched that show since I was 12. I'm sitting there. They're like, three, two. Well, I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing in the TV? <laughs> like, if it, there was ever a time for me to feel imposter syndrome, it was in that moment. But there's this other narrative in me that I've programmed, which says that's exactly where you're supposed to be. Imagine a life without those moments of terror, where you feel a little bit out of your depth. Um, and going back to your, your question about areas of my life where I feel like an imposter. So if I use the frame of like, of growth, which is how I think, there are so many areas in my life where I, I currently feel out of my comfort zone. In my relationship, I do, because I've never been this deep into a relationship before. So I feel like I'm fixing the paraglider as we fall, you know, jumped off the cliff and now we're fixing the paraglider and hoping we don't hit the ground. I'm doing a TV show at the moment, with, uh, which we've been working on for three years now, and it's finally in the last stages of testing. And never done that before, never been a co-creator of a TV show before. Um, it's exciting. I think I always feel like an imposter with like, um, I've hired and managed thousands of people over the last 10 years, but I still know, maybe because I never went to school to learn and I've never read a book about it, I still know that I'm kind of winging people management. And even running businesses, I'm still winging it, which is important because naivety is a wonderful source of innovation and new ideas. So you can be overread on something, which I think is why so many of the great CEOs of our time are very, very young. Yeah. Even though I have these world-class health experts come on the Eric Hitami podcast and tell me that I need to exercise, recently I've been finding it quite difficult to stay motivated when it comes to exercise. And if I'm being honest, by recently, I mean it's been years since I've had a consistent workout routine. January 1st of every year, I'll get motivated and say, this is the year I'm going to get fit. But then I slip back into my old habits. But this time, things are going to be different, actually. I want to prioritize my health. I want to feel strong. I want to feel like I'm taking care of my body. To achieve this, I've discovered Copilot, and I'm just a few weeks in, but let me tell you, it's been a game changer. With Copilot, you download the app and you get assigned an expert coach. Mine is amazing. We got on a kickoff call where we talked about everything from my goals, what I want to achieve. I told her that I have a bad lower back, so I want to make sure that the exercises don't hurt it. Then she assigned me my workouts. The workouts are customized for you, and you can work out at any time at the gym or home, wherever you are. 
Your expert coach is there for you. I was sick recently and you can kind of hear I'm still getting over it. So I messaged her in the app and she gave me an easy 10 minute stretch to do instead of the normal workout. I'm so excited to be kicking off my health journey with Copilot. And if you've been wanting to kickstart your health, then go to erica.com slash copilot, Erica, always with a K, to get a 14-day free trial with your own personal trainer. Again, that's erica.com slash copilot. Now, I was thinking about the concept of this challenge because I was describing to a friend that for me, TikTok, my earliest days were the most fun. It was just me putting out a video a day and trying to see what would work with the algorithm. And 30, within 30 days, I think I gained 5 million followers. And then suddenly it was no longer fun. And what I realized is that I enjoyed the challenge of trying to go from zero to one. And I don't really enjoy going from one to two. So he asked me then, like, you know, what was your childhood like? And what we came to the conclusion of was when your childhood growing up is filled with so much challenge and things aren't coming easily to you and you have to work really hard for everything, it's almost this, even as an adult, you want to continue to feel challenged constantly because you things didn't come easily. So when things start to feel like they're getting too easy, then it kind of repulses you. Yeah, and you know, I think actually your reaction there is characteristic of 90 9% of human beings, they've actually tested this. There's actually a fable which I write about, which is, um, they talk about an old lady who has this wonderful house in this street. She's 90 years old. And then these kids come outside our house with a football. and They start playing football and making loads of noise. She's a very smart old lady. So what she does is she goes outside. She's very annoyed by this. She goes outside to the kids and she says, listen, I absolutely love you guys playing the football here every day. So I'm going to give you $5 to come back tomorrow and make as much noise as you can and do exactly what you did. So the kids are like, amazing. They come back the next day. They make as much noise as they can. She gives them the $5. The next day, she goes, I've got a little bit less money today. She gives them $4. The next day, they come back and they're making loads of noise. She gives them $3. The next day, $2. The next day, $1. On the, on the last day, she go, comes outside. She goes, I've got no more money to give you guys. Um, I'm so sorry. The kids never come back again. And, and, this, and the psychology at play there, which is exactly what would happen, is if you can move someone's center point of their motivation from intrinsic, they're doing it for themselves, to extrinsic, they're doing it now for metrics or uh, rewards or remuneration, motivation drops off. And it's one of the most staggering things why when you're building a company, you've got to be careful when you use bonuses for behavior that is occurring naturally. And Daniel Pink, the motivation psychologist, warns against it. Be careful if you start to reward something or remove someone's center of motivation from internal, they're doing it for the love of it, they're doing it for the creation and the joy of it, to now they're doing it as a job, it drops off a cliff. And you'll hear, if you speak to any YouTuber who's got success, them early days where they were just doing it for the love were much nicer than all of the dissonance and psychological friction that they undergo because they've got brand deals and the metrics are going down and what does that mean? And they've got a team and now it's their identity it removes the love of the, the, the craft. So as a creator, you've got to almost fight for, to keep the motivation intrinsic. And as you, your podcast takes over the world and all these other things, it's something that I think about a lot and say to my team, even how I've defended that in my own life for my podcast is, I'll never have a conversation with someone on my podcast just because they have loads of followers. And because I, because I know what the future looks like if I stop enjoying these conversations or stop, start doing them for the, for the wrong reasons, Every single guest on my podcast, I approve. We, someone was requested to come on my podcast the other day. They have 17 million followers. 
I said to my team, my team, are very, my team were very excited by it. I said, I wouldn't enjoy the conversation, so no. And also, that's why I never did it on Zoom. Never ever done one on Zoom, even through the pandemic. We always did it in person because I wouldn't enjoy it. And the minute and it, would, it would start to become work. So the minute it becomes work, my motivation goes. So let's keep it that something that I'm doing for the love of the play. What was the inflection point for Diary of a CEO? When did you really start to see it get traction? Remember the conversation I had with Jack, which, say three years ago, where when I said, Jack, let's do this properly. Let's do this every week. I was doing it like once every two months. So let's do it properly. That was three years ago. And I'm a person that thinks about compounding returns a lot. That's the frame that I think through in terms of growth. So I could forecast it was going to be the number one in, in Europe because of the way that the graph was compounding. We weren't even in the top 200. But if you look at the, the compounding return you're getting from these marginal gains you're finding, you can predict where you're going to end up. So as we sit here today, according to our compounding graph, in five years' time when YouTube will have, I've not checked in three days, uh, about 55 million subscribers. That's on YouTube. And what you should focus on isn't where you are today. It is that, that compounding graph. It's like the percentage increase month over month or day over day or week over week and where that plots you on your trajectory. And like, also, I'd also say just to rebuttal myself, don't even focus on that. What you should actually focus on is how you find a way to make a 1% gain in anything that you can do. It goes back to what I was saying about Sir David Brailsford. Not only do you then get this huge psychological boost for you and your team that we're going somewhere because the smallest gains are the easiest to find, but also it's those 1% gains that sometimes you aim at a 1% gain, you think that will be a 1%. You find out that it's actually a 300% gain. In the book, I write about one particular gain on the podcast where we changed 10 seconds and we got a 350% increase in our view to subscriber rate. And I go, I thought that was 1% gain. It's actually 300% increase in our YouTube subscribers per view that we get. My obsession in my companies, in all of my companies, in my podcast business and everything is this phrase 1%. We have a Slack channel called 1%. It's the most used term in our offices is 1%. And we obsess over the small stuff. The stuff that's easy to do is also easy not to do. So the presumption there is that most of your competitors will not do it. It's easy not to brush your teeth. So it's also easy to brush your teeth. It's easy... Uh, to save five pounds. It's also easy not to save five pounds. All of those areas of your life, your teeth, your finances, they are compounding at this exact moment for you or against you. And it's so small and subtle that it's invisible. People can't see it, but the graph exists. Every facet of your life, your relationships, it's all compounding. If you looked at it on a graph, it would be slow. You know about compounding returns, I know you do. It'd be slow and then it's fast. That is identical to what our podcast graph looked like on Spotify. It was flat for two years, no one's listening. And then it turned into like the Burj Khalifa. It was like, it's a straight up line. But I know when that happened, it didn't happen when the line started going up. It happened over here when we started compounding. And I obsess over the tiniest details. We have the same podcast studio in London as in LA and in New York, identical to the book. What about those first two years where it was kind of a flat line? Mm -hmm. How did you understand what to put effort towards? Like where did you want to gain that 1% versus where is it not worth putting the time in? Experimentation really is the heart of this because going looking forward, you don't know what's going to work. Like I said, with that experiment where I changed 10 seconds, I read about it and it had a 350% increase in our growth. I didn't know that was going to happen, but it was a hypothesis which we ran. The key to success in business and in content creation and in life, and I'm sure because you're a killer at this, is you have to increase your experimentation rate and outfail your competition. The thing that I care about most isn't like, honestly, isn't like how other podcasts are doing. It is purely our team's rate of experimentation. Are we outfailing the competition? 
And at this exact moment, I can tell you the amount of experiments we're conducting weekly that are measured, because that's what I think about. And especially in a world that is changing at the rate in which ours is changing with AI and Ray Kurzweil predicting that we'll experience 20,000 years change in the 21st century, you're not going to get it from a book. Books take years to publish. You're actually not going to even read it online because by the time some thread boy has told the world about it, it is saturated. It is an exhausted blueprint. So the question should be for your kids, for you, for your team, should be how do we create a strategy to arrive at the correct answer fast? right? So right now I can tell you how every algorithm works, but I don't know how they're going to work in six months, but in six months I'll know because our team would have conducted so many experiments to find the answer. It's all, that's what it all comes down to. And it gets difficult as your company grows because you have all this bureaucracy and sign off and you got to wait from Joanne to get back from annual leave from her honeymoon or whatever else to make a decision. So as CEOs of big companies, we have to create systems that keep our teams agile, empowered, incentivized to fail, which again is a whole topic. How do you incentivize a group of people to fail? You know, you look at job descriptions, you look at, go to someone's office, it will say like, like uh, move fast and break things on the wall. But then you look at their job descriptions and their job is to do their job. So you, there's, a, there's a misalignment of, of instructions and incentives. You have to change the incentives of your team so that failure is success. And specifically, running the experiment is the success. Not what happens. They couldn't control that. So you can't penalize or, you know, or reward people on the basis of that. You have to reward people on the completion of the experiment. The outcome is, bah, who knows, it's outputs. This is also what Jeff Bezos said when he left Amazon. His parting letter was all about experimentation. He, go, he was saying like, we, we have this graveyard of experiments that you'll never know about. All these companies that we, we launched that made nothing. But the odd experiment, the one in 10, the AWS, which makes, I think, $60 billion a year for Amazon, we were defined by those experiments. Booking.com, they say they became the best booking hotel booking company in the world purely because of experimentation. They actually have an experimentation platform where I think they conduct a, it's like a million experiments a year. Whole experimentation team. Toyota the leading automaker again this year, beating everybody in the world. They came out of post-World War II era in Japan where they had no resources, but they had this philosophy called Kaizen, which meant that everybody, not just the CEO and the C-suite, but the people on the production line were responsible for 1% marginal experimentation, which literally means in Kaizen, if there's a warning sign on the wall, and you think if it moves four inches down, there'd be less accidents on the production line, the person on the production line is empowered to say, we should move that sign four inches down, there'd be less accidents. Trivial, easy not to do. It's a 1%. But if it means that the production line doesn't stop for half an hour a day, that means they can produce 20 more cars and that compounds. That's, that's my philosophy for, towards life. And I'm obsessed with that. I write about the Kaizen thing. I write about how Tiger Woods talks about Kaizen and that philosophy towards marginal gains, experimentation rate. It is the thing I'm most passionate about in business because... Business is super complicated. We're, we're all looking for like the right answers in books and stuff. You don't need to. You just need a philosophy towards finding the right answer quickly. How does someone on your team earn your trust to get to a point where you are fine letting them take control of these experiments? So, I assume that's not instant. So trust is a belief. And a belief, a belief very much like the self-belief you have or the belief that someone might have that the earth is flat. These are all just beliefs. And it's interesting because... Someone was saying to me the other day, not in my team, just a friend was like, oh, trust me. And I remember thinking, we can't choose to trust somebody. 
Like, really, if we, if we accept it, let me take you a step back to try and interrogate this with me. I don't believe we choose any of our beliefs. It's actually one of the laws I wrote about, that we don't get to choose any of our beliefs. Do you think that's true? You'll have to elaborate further. Okay, so, but just do, if I said to you, do you think you choose your beliefs? No. I'm not talking about faith or hope. They're, those are different things, but beliefs, things you believe. No, I believe they exist in you. I don't think you choose, I'm going to believe this versus this. Yeah, and I, I would agree. And one way of thinking about that is like, is there any belief you currently have that you could unchoose? Like, so think about something you believe. Could you now unchoose it? No. What if I, if I put your entire family, I held them at gunpoint, and I said, unless you believe something different. So think about one belief you have. Unless you believe that I'm a spaghetti monster, I'm going to pull the trigger on your entire family. You still couldn't believe it. You could lie to me. You could say, I believe you're the spaghetti monster. But you could not see, everything's on the line. And you still can't choose to believe something that would save your entire family. So what makes you think you could choose any of your beliefs? And once you understand that, you go, okay, well, so where do my beliefs come from? And if you understand that, you can figure out how to influence them. And for me, beliefs are based on evidence that we've subjectively interpreted or accepted as true. It's not necessarily true, but at some point in our lives, when that kid bullied us on the playground and said we were this and that, we accepted that as the truth, right? Um, so if it is based on evidence, then the way that you can change a belief is by getting counteracting evidence that you believe to be true. And that's the same for self-belief. It's the same for, for everything in our lives, every form of belief. And it's the same for trust. You need counteracting evidence that you subjectively believe to be true. And if you, want to, if you believe you're a bad public speaker, the only way you're going to get counteracting evidence is going out into that imposter syndrome, into that growth zone, where you go on stage and you get new evidence about yourself and who you are and what you're capable of. So instead of this advice of like looking in the mirror and telling yourself something, which you are literally lying to yourself and you do not believe right? This like manifestation in the mirror, I'm going to be a million lang, I'll be successful, I'm beautiful, they're going to love me. Like all of that stuff, it's, it's whatever, it might make you feel good or whatever in that moment, not really not. But evidence is going to be going out into the world and putting yourselves in a situation where you're going to be hit in the face with new evidence um, from sources you trust, which is critically important. And the strength of the new evidence you require correlates to the strength of the existing evidence you have. So if you have weak existing evidence, it's much easier to change. But if you have strong existing evidence, it's much harder to change. If I said to a child, there was a pink pig flying through the sky, because a kid doesn't know anything about aviation, or, or really pigs, okay, and, it, and it's coming from its mother, the source that it can trust, it'll go, yeah, okay. If you say that to an adult, we'll immediately think about the laws of aviation and gravity and go, no, that's not, that's not true. Because while existing evidence count, is too strong to accept it, people also believe things when it's good news. I saw that in a lot of the studies I write about, which is if I told you that you're way better looking, you're way prettier than I've interviewed the public. They did this in tests. They said, how pretty do you think you are? If you say I'm 10 out of 10. And then I go and interview the public, fake interview the public. And I say, they've actually said you're an 11 out of 10. People will shift upwards. <laughs> but if they say the opposite, people won't shift downwards. And it's the same with politics. If you find out that if you're a Trump supporter and you find out Trump is more likely to win, you will shift right to the left. But Hillary Clinton supporters won't move. So if something's good from a source we trust, but also if we have 95% of the same beliefs on other topics, you know, if I'm a conspiracy theorist and I believe in, you know, everything conspiracy related, and then I tell you something about the flat earth, you're much more likely to accept it from me. So yeah, that's how beliefs come from. And so going back to your point about trust, unfortunately, um, I don't think you can choose to trust people. I think they have to earn your trust by giving you evidence. In my companies, I start from a position of trust. And then if they provide you with evidence that that trust has been misplaced, unfortunately, they're going to have to do a lot of work to get that trust back, which is they're going to have to provide you with evidence that you subjectively believe to be true. 
to trust them again. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of times it's hard for me to sleep at night. I have all these things in my mind about what happened today, all the things I have to get done tomorrow, and it just feels like my mind is racing at 100 miles an hour. And then when I can't get to sleep, I start to worry about how I'm not going to be able to get enough hours of sleep before my next meeting, and that anxiety keeps me up even longer. I started therapy with BetterHelp a few months ago, and it's been really helpful to talk to someone and form new habits that support my mental well-being. The benefits of therapy can apply to everyone. So if you're ready to start your therapy journey, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com ETM today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ETM for Erica Taught Me. Think of your favorite entrepreneur. They wouldn't be anywhere without trusted partners. If your commerce platform is scaring away potential customers instead of converting them into lifelong fans, you have to try Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide, a truly global force powering millions of entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling from Shopify's in-person point-of-sale system or on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you're covered. I always say that if you only have one income stream, that's too close to zero. So if you're looking to start that new income stream to sell whatever you want to sell, give Shopify a try. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Erica, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Erica to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash Erica. Don't forget Erica with a K. That's interesting. No, I was talking to someone else about this and they were saying that trust could also be cultural because so I'm half Japanese, half American. And Japanese, he was saying, his studies showed that by default, they trust people. So the assumption when you go into stores that this person is trustworthy. Americans, by default, they don't trust people. So trust has to be earned. So when you go to a car salesman, let's say, you don't trust them and they have to earn your trust. So it's funny for me because I think I start at the baseline, like you were saying, of I trust everyone. Mm -hmm. But then if you lose my trust, mm -hmm. very hard to ever get back. So interestingly, by default, because... What you'll find in the Japanese culture is probably evidence from the moment you're born that people are worth trusting, right? Maybe yeah. from the media, from... I've been to J Japan and people are just the most lovely, sweet... It's, people were so nice to me in Japan, I thought I was in like a TV show. It was, I said to my team, I was like, they're suspiciously nice. Like bowing when they give me the bill. Just unbelievably <laughs> like wonderful human beings. You go to America, I mean, people are lovely in America, but if I grew up in America, I would probably be exposed to a lot of polarization, a lot of craziness, a lot of 
you know, you know, a negativity bias in the news and all of these things, which would probably make me untrusting. And I've, I've read the, the trust report from Endelman, which comes out every year, which looks at every country in the world and looks at the variance in trust and how much they trust governments, institutions, charities. And you're right, there is a huge difference, but there's a huge difference in our media. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge difference from the first conversation we have with somebody in the street in these countries. So I don't think it's by default necessarily. I think it's evidence we get. What do you think distinguishes a person who, when they're presented with new evidence, is willing to change their beliefs versus there are some people, it seems like, even when presented with new evidence, they will not change their beliefs? Again, it comes down to the the evidence you currently have, the source of the evidence, and whether it's good news or not. Those tend to be the, the most important things. And also, how far away this new evidence that I'm being presented is far from my existing beliefs. And I spoke with Tally Sharrett, who's the leading neuroscientist from MIT and big university here in London, and that's exactly what she said to me. And that's what she writes about and I wrote about is, you know, if you really want to, but also there's this other point, right? Which is, which I write about in law three, which is you must never disagree because she found in her studies when she scanned people's brains in these chambers in this test laboratory, that the minute someone disagrees with you, your brain basically shuts down. So in the studies, when two people agreed, the brain remained lit up and they would follow each other's opinion. But the minute they disagreed, what she'd see is the brain almost like the lights went off in the brain. And if you think about that, when you're trying to persuade somebody, whether it's your partner or your colleague at work, you, you learn from it that in order to make progress towards the solution, towards the, the correct answer in your mind, you've got to be very careful not to shut their brain down. So when we start conversations or we start you know, discussions at work and we go, you, you tell me an idea, then I go, I disagree, boom, gone. Or you say something and I go, no, I don't agree. I don't think that, um, let me tell you why you're wrong. Boom, gone. You've, looked, you've shut their brain down. What you can do is what Julian Treasure and Paul Brunson, who's the leading matchmaker in the world, and Julian Treasure has the TED Talk, which got 69 million views about speaking and listening, is you can make people feel heard and understood. And this is really the path. So you tell me your idea. I repeat it back to you and go, oh my God, so you think we should um, upload the podcast to Rumble? I think, that, okay, so you, you, you think we should upload it to Rumble. Right, I understand that. Right, great. How, what, what do you think about this? And at no point have I made you, I've disagreed because I'm taking you now in a different direction, but because you feel heard and understood, um, it's not me versus you, it's me and you versus the problem. Mm. And this is central to relationships and forward motion and surviving in any relationship context is it has to feel like it's me and you versus the problem, not me versus you. When people can't communicate, when they lead with disagreements, especially when they're fighting over conspiracy theories, it feels that way. Professor John Gottman changed my life because he did the study on why people get divorced so 40 years of research, and what is the one thing that makes people lead to divorce? And he discovered in his studies, it's not arguing, it's not even, you know, hysterical laughing or anything, it's contempt. And contempt is, if you say, babe, look out the window, and I'm watching the football, and I go like this, that, that subtle eye roll that says, it's 20 years of unaddressed BS, I'm sick of hurt, because we haven't communicated So if we don't communicate and do conflict resolution, all of that frustration is deposited in our relationship and you can predict the long-term health of a relationship by whether each conflict heals to 101% or 99%. Does our conflict make us stronger? For most people in business and in life and in disagreements, it's, it's weakening the relationship. And communication, therefore, is the answer, which goes back to what I said about making someone feel heard and understood and then um, hopefully making forward motion. So I like what your perspective of the us against the problem 
there's this tip, you know, when you're doing an interview or asking for a raise, you don't want to have a table between you and the person you're asking for a raise from. You want to try to get on the same side with them because as soon as you put that physical object, it creates this barrier as if it's me against you, not us against the problem of, hey, I want to keep working here, but I would like a raise because this, these reasons. You probably had our conversations maybe with a romantic partner where you just go round and round in circles. Like they're saying their thing, you're saying it back. They're saying your thing, you're saying it back. And it's just this broken record. That was every relationship I ever had. It was my parents. Just my mum would shout at my dad for seven hours, these long shouting matches. And there was, n- there was no progress being made. And that's when I realized that like in conflict and in interpersonal conflict, it's always me versus you. On Twitter, like it's always me, you versus the other person. And there's no forward motion there. It's just wasted time and like psychological friction. So... How can you frame you as a team, as you say, and then the problem is something you're both aiming at? Body language is a fantastic way to do that. And making someone feel heard and understood and keeping focused on what you're trying to solve, you know, is is another important way. In your new book, The Diary of a CEO, The 33 Laws of Business and Life, what would you say is the one law that you were most hesitant to accept as a belief? I try to lead into these things with a certain impartiality, which means if it's true, it's true. And if it offends you, then um, the truth sometimes does make us feel uncomfortable in all walks of life. And there are certain laws here which I realize would make people feel somewhat uncomfortable because they're maybe not as politically correct as others. The, there's one at the back here about tw- law 29 about creating a cult mentality. And I examine how the greatest teams, the greatest startups, the greatest companies all start by creating something that resembles a cult. And I look at the psychology of cults and I make a link between the psychology of cults, the worst cults in the world, like Heaven's Gate, who, you know, were so deludedly delusional that they believed the, the meat, there was a meteor that was going to fly past and, and take them all to the promised land. So they all went and bought telescopes. And when the meteor didn't come, they returned the telescopes, complained about the telescopes, and then all did this sort of mass suicide thing with, with they drank the Kool-Aid. That's where the phrase came from. And ha- creating a, a link between that, a cult, and the greatest companies in the world with the greatest founders who will describe the early days as a cult and then looking at how you create a cult is somewhat controversial. What about the one law that has gotten you the furthest in life? If you had to just pick one. From a marketing standpoint, it is the useless absurdity will define you more than useful practicalities. And then from a life standpoint, it's going to be this one, the discipline equation, death, time and discipline. The Useless absurdity will define you more than useful practicalities, one I think is really, really fun because you'll probably see it everywhere you go once I've explained. Um, my girlfriend went to a gym in Canary Wharf here in London. And she came back from the gym and she was like, babe, I went to this gym today. It's amazing. They even have a 100-foot climbing wall, right? I end up going to the gym. I get a membership there, really expensive gym, get a membership there. I see the climbing wall she's talking about. Never, ever seen anybody use it. My friend, I go to my friend, mate, you should join this gym. It's amazing. They even have a 100 foot climbing wall. What you notice is in experiences and in products is people will point at the most useless but absurd thing about the whole experience to help them define the entire experience. What my girlfriend was saying in that moment is if they have a 100 foot climbing wall, imagine how many running machines they have. Imagine how many you know, deadlift machines they have. The most absurd thing about any experience will tell you the story of the whole experience, but it also communicates the value of the brand. Brewdog, maybe, you know, they're a billion dollar beer company now in the UK, came out of nowhere, killed the game. And if you go into their new Brewdog hotels, they have beer fridges in the showers. 
Now, this is a completely absurd thing to do. I don't believe anybody's drinking beer while they're in the shower. Like, I don't believe people are pouring beers in the showers. <laughs> but this guy knows. This guy knows, knows the power of useless absurdity. Because if you, look on go- if you look on Google and type in the BrewDog hotels, they're not talking about the mattresses. They're not talking about the pillows. They're talking only about the beer fridges. The beer fridges are doing the entirety of the marketing work. It is pulling 99% of the weight, the most absurd thing about it. And I look at my, my company where we had, we had our headquarters in Manchester. We had about 200 people in there, 15,000 square feet. And when I moved in there, because I was an idiot, I took 13,000 pounds of investor money and bought a big blue slide. And I built, just built a room so the big blue slide could come out of a gaming room up there. And this big blue slide, and it comes down into a ball pool. When press came to our office, the BBC, Channel 5, Channel 4, Channel 3, BuzzFeed, Vice News did a documentary. They didn't care about anything else other than me lying in the ball pool for their photos. <laughs> and it became synonymous. Oh, the office in my, oh, they, oh, have you heard about that company? They even have a huge blue slide. What the blue slide said was important for our business. It was young, disruptive, think differently, innovative. It did all of the work. It was the worst financial decisions I, have, I ever made in foresight, but in hindsight, it was the best marketing decision I ever made. The most useless and absurd thing about any experience defines the whole experience. Tesla. All those Easter eggs in the car where you can turn the back seats into whoopee cushions. They do no marketing, but their brand is built on that word of mouth driven by absurdity. Mm. So when you're building an experience, instead of doing all the, you know, you've got, just got to realize that the most absurd thing about you will say everything about you. So build that into the, into the product, build it into the service. And obviously now with Gen Z, you also get loads of Instagram posts if you do something absurd. So it now drives marketing in a completely different way. If you're not building an office or a business or a product with absurdity built into the experience somewhere, then you're really letting yourself down. And founders do this, but CEOs don't. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too. Like if you look at social media and who has become very big, it's also the people that say the absurd things. Of course. Because the people who say these absurd things are more memorable than the people who say not absurd things. Yeah, they, 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 you, by saying an absurd thing, you're creating a gravitational pull. And what's happening is the entirety of the world will just orbit you. You'll be the center point of discussion. Did you hear Andrew Tate said this? And then every news broadcaster and every influencer is just orbiting around his opinion. Pierce Morgan, Kanye West, over here, Katie Hopkins. These people become the center point of the conversation. What's the most absurd, controversial opinion you have? Do you know what? Um, there's many that would probably, uh, you know, probably not get me very far in life. Um, <laughs> but I think maybe one of the most surprisingly controversial opinions is just how much I believe in personal responsibility. Just how much I believe in like empowering yourself by admitting that you really do have control over your life. And I know this is a controversial opinion because I sat with Mo Gordat, who's the ex-head of Google, and he says he writes his book with and, and crowdsources the process. So he gets 500 people onto a Google document. He said to me, because every time people get to the, the chapter on personal responsibility, I lose 10% of people in the document. They just drop off. People don't like the idea of that. And I understand like life can be really hard. So there's some things in life that happen to you that you're not responsible for, but I still think you're responsible for how you respond. And I think that frame to think through in life, okay, bad things are going to happen that aren't my fault, but they are my responsibility in terms of how I proceed forward. It is a much better way to live. And the science also shows and the study shows that people with that high sense of that internal locus of control, which is that internal center of control, that high personal responsibility, have better relationships, better jobs, better life success, and they're healthier. So isn't that a wonderful decision to make? Okay, it's going to turn the mirror on me sometimes when I mess up and I'm going to have to say I'm responsible for that. 
But over the long term, if you zoom out again, it's going to take me to a better place. So I think personal responsibility, unfortunately, is one of the most controversial opinions I have. Because when I say it, people don't like it. It's easier to blame the system and the circumstances and the situation. And maybe, you know, maybe there's validity to that. Maybe the system is awful, but just being a victim to that and um, being powerless is not going to lead me to a good place. Think about like being a young black man growing up in where I grew up and then being 18 years old, going into these board meetings with all these white men in suits and they're all staring at me, they're triple my age and I'm telling them about this website, Wallpark, I'm going to start and I want money and I want them to be partners with me. I'm wearing this fake, like this fake suit that doesn't fit me from Primark. And you can imagine in that moment, it's very clear to me that I'm being judged. It's very clear to me that my curly hair and my, my dark skin is uh, making them arrive at conclusions. But the risk is... If I let that stereotype get to me, if I give up my control, and if in that moment I focus on the prejudice as opposed to my performance, it's very clear that my outcomes aren't going to be great. And I write about stereotype threats in here. You know, even if on a test, if they remind a woman that she is a woman before a test, a maths test, her performance dips. Right, because there's a stereotype that women aren't good as math. And it's the same with black people. If they remind them of that, if they just put a tick box and say, what's your ethnicity on the test, performance dips. So again, one of the things I've always focused on isn't on the prejudice and discrimination, which I'm sure I face. It's on what I can do. You know, how I can show up um, regardless of that. And that will take you such a long way, like taking control, even when forces are against you, saying, what, who cares, what can I do? You know, it's not my responsibility to end racism. My responsibility is to do my best in that, in that room. And that really helped me because I see how la through labeling theory, we can become the social labels we are given. And that turns us into a little bit of a victim in certain situations. And you don't want to show up with a victimhood mindset. No. You want to show up feeling powerful and strong and like, you know, capable. How are you thinking about growing your wealth? Are mm -hmm. you investing it? Where are you putting your money right now? My best returns have come from building companies. And that's something that I've learned from some of my very successful billionaire mentors, that one of which we were talking about before we went on air, that I was at his house down the road earlier. And he said to me as well, he said, you know, I've made lots of investments. He's done multiple IPOs and all that. But he says, when I looked at my portfolio, the best returns I've ever gotten are from companies I've started. So we were chatting about starting some companies together. So that's a huge part of my ongoing strategy, which is just start companies, start businesses. So we started Flight Story, we started Third Web, I've got my investment funds. Diary of CEO is a business in and of itself, which I think surprises people because people think of it as a podcast, but it's a very lucrative business. Have you talked about how lucrative? I hope next year we'll, we'll net an eight-figure number. So it, I think that'll be our best year ever if things keep going in the direction they're going in. And obviously Rogan, what, he, what he's like a nine... His podcast makes nine figures. He, I mean, I think the deal he did with Spotify was for $200 million, I heard. So, you know, but podcasting can be really lucrative. I understand that it's lucrative, most lucrative for the people at the very top of the charts that have bigger audiences. But regardless of that, even when we started out, we, we made some calls and got our first sponsor, which was Huel. So, but your expenses are quite high for the podcast with really 30, high, yeah, 30 people. I, mean, I didn't say the profit. The profit won't be that big. <laughs> and I, to, be, to be fair with the podcast business, we see, I see it as... I see the profits as a tool for growth. So if we make profits, I personally would be up for doing anything that will allow us to build out the platform. My business isn't really the podcast. The podcast is a great way to meet people. It's a great platform for exposure. And the podcast sponsors I have, which I think is key, are pretty much, or with a couple of exceptions, brands that I own. So like, or have equity in. Yeah, I mean, whatever. I actually care more about people 
understanding their health metrics than I do what they were. But for me, I went online and looked at a YouTube video where they compared 30 of them to hospital grade equipment and the Whoop 3 was the most accurate. So that's why I, um, I chose it. And I met the founder, Will, and he's fantastic. So how do you negotiate something like that? How do you get into a conversation with the founder of Whoop, first of all, and then how do you convince them to give you a piece of the company? All three have been the same. I've had a conversation with the founder. So Huel, it was statistically the fastest growing e-commerce company internationally from the UK. Their revenue went from like rough numbers here, like 30, 50, 70, 100, whatever million. And I knew the founder. I used the company. I used the products. So I had him on the podcast many, many years ago before we even filmed it. And then when I was going to launch the podcast properly and do it weekly, I called him and said, listen, bet on me. And I'll, do, I'll make sure this podcast uh, is successful. And he actually had higher, to be honest, he had higher conviction that the podcast was going to be big than I did. He was like, you'll, 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 you'll kill it. We'll give you this much sponsorship, crack on with it. So they're companies I use that I invest in that sponsor the show as well. And for me, that's a 360. And I think my audience know me well enough to know if something makes sense. And I think it's really important, actually, for people that are starting out content creation. I think you need to really focus on the fact that you have an audience and that it's all well and good taking a sponsorship, which is important to keep the lights on. But if you can get a piece of the pie that you're promoting over the long term, that is the game. And that's what I want to do with all my sponsors is every podcast sponsor I have, I want to, I want to be an investor in the company. Do you think that for me, those kinds of conversations I imagine are quite hard to have because you f you run the risk of them saying no. Fine, who cares? <laughs> who <laughs> what, cares? Yeah. What's the hardest no you've ever gotten? I get no's all the time, every day. And I when I ask someone a question, they're within their right to say no, and I'm within my right to ask it. And, and do you know what I mean? That, so uh, there's no, they shouldn't be uncomfortable. And I, actually, when I pose these questions to founders, I'm doing one right now, I probably can't say because it might not go through, but a brand that I use in love, and I went, damn, that, that brand is about to take over the world. I want them to sponsor my podcast and I want to put a million quid into their, into their business. I'm just going to email the founder. I'm going to email him cold and just say, listen, absolutely love it. You guys are killing the game. Me and my girlfriend are obsessed with your company. I would love to invest in your company and I'd love to sponsor it. And I'd love to help you drive the marketing side of the business as well. So I'd love to like work with your team and drive their marketing. Just throw it out there. Honestly, in life, you don't ask, you don't get. And the more doors you knock on, the more that opens. So if I throw out 100 of those emails, which I don't, I've probably thrown out <laughs> about six, I'd say five of them have come off. Because if you ask in the right way, and it comes from a good place, and you understand their world and what they want, you, you speak through that frame of what they want, you can be successful in asking questions. So yeah, what's the, the question was about what's the, um, the biggest no I've ever got. Jeez, I get no's all the time. Thinking about investments that I've tried to invest in and the business has just taken off so quickly while we were doing negotiations that they've turned around and said, ha we don't need anybody. That happens a lot, unfortunately. <laughs> All the time. Life is just full of like doors being slammed in your face. It doesn't, that doesn't matter. What matters is your response to the door hitting your nose, which is no loss in enthusiasm, understanding that this is part of the process to getting to the yes, um, and understanding it's not necessarily a ref reflection on your self-esteem. Some things just don't fit. And sometimes, as they say, rejection is redirection, which means it, you can think about so many times in your life where someone has said no to you. And in hindsight, you go, oh, thank God. Thank God. It's funny because I was on radio yesterday and I sat in this radio studio in London and I had emailed this radio station a month before I started the podcast and begged them to let me be a radio presenter. I came down, I did my interview on air, thought I'd killed it. The person who was meant to be like, 
checking my radio skills, actually just ran out of the room after five minutes because something was going on. And then I left the radio after doing my like hour and a half like test and never heard back. No email, nothing. A month later, I start the podcast. A month after that, I joined Dragon's Den. And in hindsight, I'm going, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God. Thank God they like fully rejected me. And that's difficult because all your team know you go in to do this radio thing. Your agent knows you go in. Your family knows you go in. Your girlfriend kisses you. Good luck outside the door. I hope you kill it, babe. And then you come in and go, yeah, no, they just never, they never emailed me. Blessing in disguise. Yeah. And even I'll tell you, so in that story, then obviously like a podcast does really well. A year ago, the same radio emailed me. Hi, would you like to do a... Um, like, uh, we'd love you to, to have your own show on the radio. And I, I said to them, I said, I'm still waiting to hear back. I said, I'm waiting to hear back from three years ago when I came and did my test. <laughs> and they were mortified because they had no recollection, no recollection that I ever came. It was like a new um, director of the radio station. And he was absolutely mortified that someone hadn't gotten back to me. They sent me a wonderful apology. I don't, you don't care. I mean, we, we all have busy lives and have a huge deal of empathy for whatever they were go- was going on that day. But it's important to conclude that story because... If you move from one rejection to the next with a certain grace and without the loss of enthusiasm, it's crazy what happens. The other story would be when I was 14 years old and I traveled from, this is going back to the story of me being able to leave the house for days without my parents knowing, traveled from Plymouth to London, which is about a four hour train trip, I believe still, to do the junior apprentice. You know the apprentice because yeah. Trump used to do it in the US. It was the junior apprentice. So it's the first ever time they were letting like young kids do it. I must've been 14 or 15 years old. And I did it for seven hours. Seven hours, I got through every single round of auditions. They called me back. And in that audition period for seven hours, I met a kid in the queue who was like, my dad is a billionaire. He's selling his companies. His company's worth 500 million. I'm like, yeah, whatever. But anyway, I was really nice to him, really kind to him, whatever. I come back and do the next round of junior apprentice auditions. I think I killed it. And I think I killed it basically because of what the other 30 kids that got to the final said to me. We all had to vote at the end of the audition. Which guy do you think had gotten through and which girl do you think had gotten through? The guys voted for me, the girls voted for, the, for my friend Abby. One thing we weren't allowed to say was our names. We weren't allowed to tell each other our names because there had to be confidentiality. On my way out, there was this, this young Sikh kid who said to me, he goes, what's your name, by the way? And I went, oh, Stephen Bartlett told him my name. I was on the train on my way back to Plymouth and I get an email from the producers. Hi, Stephen Bartlett. We've just found out that your friend, um, couldn't spell my name, this, this friend that couldn't spell my name, has made a Facebook group saying that you're going to be on the show. And so this has jeopardized your chances of making the show. We weren't allowed to do any publicity or tell them it had to be a secret. Um, so someone had made a Facebook group saying Stephen Bartlett's joining the apprentice, whatever. And by the time I hadn't even gotten back, I still had my shoes on. They had told me that my chances of getting on the show were jeopardized. They then called me to tell me that I wasn't on the show. For me at that time, that second stage audition, I told my family, all my friends in Plymouth knew we were poor. So the thought of winning 25,000 pounds, if I'd won the junior apprentice was like, it was earth shattering to me. And for it to be done in such a way where someone had stitched me up was like heartbreaking. But that kid I met in the queue, turns out his dad was a billionaire. His dad invested three times more, two or three times more in my business um, than I ever would have made if I'd won the show just from the guy that I met in the queue while doing The Apprentice. So that was a huge loss for me, like not getting on The Apprentice. But the kid that I met in the queue's dad, um, the Alawalia family, invested tens and tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands in my first business when I was 18 years old. So even in the process of taking a massive L, there was something along the way that I took from it. And that, you know, they say every cloud has a silver lining. It really does if you don't lose enthusiasm and you keep moving forward and detach the rejection from your self-esteem. 
Because I could have just said, forget business. I'm never going to start one again. But obviously at 18 years old, a couple of years later, when my business launched, he messaged me on Facebook and said, hey, it's, it's Jay who you met in the queue. My dad wants to chat to you. So yeah, and that's the, that's the theme of my whole life is those rejections. In hindsight, I'm so, I'm so happy for so many of them. It's really, there's really no rejection I can think of that I go, man, I would, I would remove that, I would erase that. And that's, that's the way, you know, like there's this thing called the eraser test where they ask people, if there was a big eraser in front of you now, a big button you could press to erase the most traumatic, horrible thing that's happened to you, would you press it? And like 99.9% .9 of people, roughly, like 99% of people would not press it because they would therefore erase all the lessons they've learned because of that. So, What's the best advice someone's given you? It's a quote, which I interpreted as advice, which was, those who think they can and those who think they can't are both usually right. And it rings true for me because I was very bad in school, very didn't go to university. But the one thing that I had, because of all that evidence that I'd accrued at a very young age, at 10, was I over my brothers even who are geniuses, still are geniuses, that one of them works for me full time, is I really believed I could. So like a quite, almost a, a little bit of a delusional way, like I really believed, I remember being 14 and saying like, if someone told me to go to the moon next week, I think there's a way to make it happen. Like that was the level of delusion. Like I thought like you could contact this person and then there might be a spacecraft going and you could maybe like get on there if you sent like a really good enough email. And I think much of my results in my life have come from being able to see the path there and not the obstacles in the way. And that is such an unbelievable macro tailwind when that naivety, when you're like taking on the world, um, it helps you grace all of the inevitable hurdles without that loss in enthusiasm. And, you know, like it helps you fail fast. And obviously failure is feedback. Feedback is knowledge and knowledge is power. So if you have that belief, you're going to throw yourself into quote unquote risk, you're going to fail, you're going to get the feedback. The feedback is the knowledge, the knowledge is the power. And that will positively, because there's this upward positive reinforcing cycle. So self-belief and the belief that if you believe you can, you probably can. If you believe you can't, you're going to show up in such a way which is actually going to stand in your way. You became a millionaire at a very young age. What do you think is the fastest path today to become a millionaire? Uh, oh, it's so interesting because my brain did a bunch of interesting things when you said that. My brain had this initial allergic reaction, which was like, if you're the type of person that's trying to take the fast path, you've already lost. I knew you were going to say something like that. <laughs> because like, it turns out that the slow way is the only way. So the slow way is the fast way. But there's going to be so much external narrative that's going to try and bait you in with the fast way. The fast way takes you nowhere. And even if you get there, it's probably unsustainable. Buying NFTs, crypto, like it's probably, it's not the enduring long-term path. The fast way is the slow way because the slow way is the only way. That's a better frame to think through. So one of the, the first law in my book is about filling your five buckets. And this is the advice I'd give to anyone that wants to be a millionaire someday. You have these five buckets in your life. The first bucket is your knowledge bucket. You want to, the, where this came from really was this story that my friend in San Francisco, someone you'll know, told me. They said, this is how they said it to me in San Francisco when I was 20. I must have been 20 years old when I was working in San Francisco, building apps with um, the old Bebo founder, Michael Birch, at his incubator. He said, this guy ran past the other day and he was sweating and panting and stuff. And he starts talking to me about these rockets and these microchips and all these things that he's doing. And then he ran off. And if you hear that story, you go, you think he's like escaped an asylum or something. The guy, my friend goes, that person was Elon Musk. 
And what I witnessed in my brain was, I went from thinking this was someone that had escaped from asylum to when you just said his name, I go, of course, yeah, yeah, makes sense. The difference is Elon has five full buckets. So people will mortgage their houses, move across the planet to work for him because he, his first bucket is his knowledge. This is the first bucket you should focus on filling. If you're 18 years old, you're thinking about which job to take. Think about what I can do to fill this bucket. When you apply your knowledge, it becomes a skill of sorts, right? These first two buckets are imperative because there's no professional earthquake in your life that can ever unfill these. No one can ever take any water out of these buckets. Of course, the buckets get bigger as more knowledge is available to learn. They're always getting bigger. But no one can ever take away your knowledge and your skills. So this is the source of filling these next three buckets. The next bucket is your network, right? This is a great reason to do a podcast. Um, it's a great business card. When the first two buckets of your knowledge and skills overflow, you, you have a network. When you have knowledge, skills, and a network, the water tips over and it cascades and fills into the fourth bucket, which is your resources. So that's when you start to get resources. Again, everyone can take away your network and they can take away your resources. And then when you have knowledge, skills, a network, and resources, you develop a reputation, which is what the world thinks of you. So it's what you know, what you can do, um, who you know, what you have, and what the world thinks of you. A full five buckets comes from the fulfillment of the first two buckets. So when I'm thinking about jobs to take, when I'm 18, 16, 14 years old, you should be focusing on ones that yield the greatest return, not the ones that are going to give you a great job title, not the one that's going to make you look cool amongst your friends or even pay you more. But you should really be focusing on filling those first two buckets like Elon did. I took a job in a call center. I worked in call centers from 16 where I started at Everest up until I was 19-ish, filling those first two buckets with the most important skills and knowledge of all, which is people and sales. It's kind of funny that I worked on telephones for that amount of time and I literally speak into a microphone every single day. I use those skills that I learned at 14 selling those double glazing with investors to raise hundreds of millions with my team members, with clients. I'm selling the marketing, you know, in my, my agency businesses. So it was very good that I didn't go and get a, like a flashy job that would pay me well or have a good job title. I worked in call centers, picking up the phone at 9 p.m. and calling Dorothy and asking her if she wanted a conservatory or artificial grass or <laughs> studio vouchers or windows or whatever. That's what I would say if you want to be a millionaire is to absolutely lean in to the areas where there's a wave coming into shore like AI or blockchain or whatever it is and get as much knowledge as you possibly can and skills like go fail in a startup that is right on the cutting edge of a wave that's coming into shore and there are like waves coming into shore right now what you need to is like get, get on the right surfboard and time it well and even if the wave crashes and you fall off or whatever you're going to learn so much from the failure that it's going to pay dividends for the entirety of your life. My failures are, I was speaking to a friend and I was saying like, okay, so my career, like the, it got good at the end. Like I had some success at the end, but that first seven years of failing, the way that I should calculate my net work, worth is by dividing it across all of the years. And then you can say like you made 5 million this year when you just failed and you were shoplifting pizzas, 5 million that year because you were filling those first two buckets. I'd focus on that. People don't because social media makes it cool to like take the job with the slide, you know? <laughs> Not the ugly job where you're like sifting through the like phone book and having to call Dorothy at 9 p.m. and you're on commission. That's amazing parting advice to leave the audience with. Um, we have a closing tradition. Right. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Stephen Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away saying, Stephen taught me this? There's some things in life that I've not been able to land, as in like I've not been able to communicate to people 
because I haven't quite found the words or the like construct or concept to like give them. But the message I want to give them is so deep in me. And the most important message that I just need to find a way to communicate to people because everything I've done, the hundreds of people's people I've interviewed have confirmed it is true, is that you are currently drastically, drastically underestimating your own capabilities and potential. And you don't find out until you, you'll achieve something great and your perception of your own potential just kind of moves off into the future. There's this wonderful video where they get an ant and they draw a circle around the ant with a pen. So imagine I had an ant on this piece of paper here and I just drew a circle around the ant. In the video, have you ever seen this video? No. Okay, so they get, this, they get a piece of paper, they put an ant on it and then they get a biro, like just a pen, and they draw a circle around it. And the ant will not cross the line. It genuinely believes that because it can see that pen line, it believes it's trapped. And if they make the circle even smaller, the ant will not cross that line either. So it's pri basically it's prisoners getting even smaller, all because of a pen line. So th and then they did it with a spider in this other video. You can find it all on YouTube. They get the spider, they put it on a piece of paper, they draw a circle around it. The spider runs up to the edge where the pe pen is and it stops. That is effectively a limiting belief. You can see from a human's perspective in the bird's eye view that there's nothing in, in, in trapping it other than its own thoughts about where it's sort of, where the barrier is. And in that study, they then, this guy's like drawing the, it's smaller and smaller. And at one point he draws it accidentally in a way which means that the spider acts, like runs over it. And you can never trap that spider ever again with that pen line. And that's, and if you think about all of us now, we are without knowing it, we have a circle drawn around us and it, we've put it there ourselves and it's come from on the playground what our parents said to us it's come from society expectations stereotypes but it is purely just a figment of our imagination as was that biro circle with that ant it's purely of our own creation understanding that it's there and understanding that it's a lie i think is critically important understanding that you've drawn your own limitations around you which are false is so important because it's been my observation over the last 15 years that those who think they can and those who think they can't are both usually right. And if only I could find a way to find the words to get people to truly understand that they're completely, probably to 99% underestimating their own professional potential in their lives, I would love to find a way to say it. And I'm still trying to find a way because I think it's the most important thing and it's the most fundamentally true thing I've ever experienced. Even you, even me, we are both probably underestimating our potential by 99% and we're showing up in such a way. And um, if we could remove that figment of our imagination, that limiting belief, I only wonder what life could be like. That was beautifully said. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.